reason that I was banned from uh, using the bread maker at our house was that I inevitably forgot something. Sometimes it was the yeast, sometimes it was the salt, sometimes it was the not the right amount of flour. So after, you know, five or six failed attempts, my mom decided that probably wasn't the thing that I should be doing in the kitchen. Uh, kind of surprised it lasted that long, but... One small thing can negatively impact something like a recipe, right? So we're going to look at some examples of how a little bit of folly can cause difficulty or spoil even the context of something that is fairly wise. In the same way, there's also the reality that all can be going well. Driving along a road in Michigan, all of a sudden your tire starts feeling funny and you realize you've picked up some sort of construction debris or a nail or whatever else. Uh, I think I've been to Bell Tire four times since we moved up here. Fortunately, they fix it for free, which is great. But uh, accidents happen. Things that are unexpected come up. And then thirdly, I'm sure no one has ever experienced this, but sometimes the person that you're working for doesn't live up to your expectations. They uh, are unreasonable or they just don't seem to understand the work that you're doing or you might be tempted to have a certain response to that to complain to speak badly of them and the last few verses of the chapter address some of that as well we're actually going to start at the end of chapter nine because we did not finish the last uh, few verses there at the end of chapter nine last time we looked at ecclesiastes so we'll start there, and let me read those few verses, and then we'll dive in. Also this I came to see as wisdom under the sun, and it impressed me. There was a small city with few men in it, and a great king came to it, surrounded it, and constructed large siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor wise man, and he delivered the city by his wisdom. Yet no one remembered that poor man. So, a good outcome that turns in an unexpected direction and is seemingly spoiled. What's going on in verse 14? Maybe one of the kids can tell me. What happened in verse 14? Yes. Okay, that's verse 15. What does verse 14 say? Okay, good. He was trying to bring the city down. And then what Braden said, verse 15, there was a poor wise man who delivered the city by his wisdom. If he was the reason the city was spared, what do you expect that they would do for him? Something, right? Name a street after him, give him the keys to the city, whatever else. It says he was forgotten. The foolishness of the people in the city spoiled his wise action. The city was saved, but he didn't benefit from it. We come to verse 17 and 18. The words are verse 16. So I said, wisdom is better than strength, but the wisdom of the poor man is despised and his words are not heeded. So here's another way in which it can be spoiled. 
if the one who is speaking wisdom is poor and not regarded as important, his words may fall on deaf ears. And by the prejudice of the people receiving the wisdom, it may come to no good. Verse 17, The words of the wise heard in quietness are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. So what's his attitude toward wisdom in these verses, these six verses? It's good. But does it always guarantee the expected result? Not in a world that's full of what Solomon has been calling breath, futility, frustration. He continues this theme a little bit in chapter 10. Dead flies make a perfumer's oil stink, so a little foolishness is weightier than wisdom and honor. You ever, well, let's think about last year. A few times we walked in, smelled something dead. One little dead bird in the baptistry makes the whole auditorium smell bad. That could be our proverb for the day. Um, it just takes one little thing that goes wrong to mess something up. I've often thought that it's ironic that it's really easy to maintain an F, and it's really hard to keep an A when it comes to grades in school, right? Because there's a lot of opportunity for dropping. It's a lot harder to bring something back up. These sorts of ideas is what Solomon is pointing out here, that a little foolishness, a little sin, can be more destructive than the great benefit that comes from wisdom. Verse 2, A wise man's heart directs him toward the right, but the foolish man's heart directs him toward the left. This is probably a condemnation of left-handed people, right? No, what's he saying? Why does he use right and left, first of all, do you think? Yeah, their culture. The right was considered good and the left was considered bad. A uh, parallel example might be what Jesus said, the uh, sheep will be on the right, the goats on the left, those who are accepted on my right hand, those who are condemned on my left uh, when it comes to the final judgment. Verse 3, Even when the fool walks along the road, his sense is lacking, and he demonstrates to everyone that he is a fool. How could you demonstrate that you're foolish just by walking along the road? Okay. <laughs> the way that you present yourself. What else? How could people tell that you're a fool just as you walk along? All right. Yeah, I mean, it's frustrating when you're trying to turn and there's somebody going... When they're able-bodied, I mean, obviously it's a different scenario if they're not able to walk quickly. Yes? Okay, that would be a modern-day example of foolishness in that context, sure. So it's possible, verse 3, for the fool to show that he is foolish just by the way that he lives his everyday life. Verse 4 ties into what we'll look at at the end of the chapter. So let's skip it for a moment. We'll come back to it. Verse 5 is also kind of connected to it. And so we'll, we'll kind of take verses 4 through 7 with the end of the chapter. 
So the first point that Solomon has made in 9, 13 through 18, the first few verses here of chapter 10 is that wisdom is good, but wisdom can be spoiled by a little foolishness or a little sin. So then we should skip wisdom, right? No, wisdom is still better than foolishness, even though foolishness can corrupt or ruin some of the good effects of, of behaving wisely. That doesn't mean that we abandon wisdom, we just recognize that that is sometimes the outcome. You could be the one who is responsible for the success of a particular project at work, and someone else might get the credit for it. You could be the person who is living right for God and still be falsely accused. That doesn't mean that you should fail to do your best at work. That doesn't mean that you should stop living rightly. It just means that in this world, which is twisted and marred by sin and has an element of futility and frustration in it, you are not always guaranteed the outcome that you expect. So let's start in verse 8 and take the next idea, and then we'll come back to the last one. Accidents happen. Accidents happen when you're doing wrong. Look at verse 8. He who digs a pit may fall into it, and the serpent may bite him who breaks through a wall. Why do I say when you're not doing what you're supposed to or when you're doing wrong? What's the imagery of, of digging a pit used for mainly in the Bible? A trap. Usually someone who has your best interest in mind is digging the pit for you, right? No. So the person who is trying to trap someone else falls into their own pit. The idea of breaking through a wall. Again, theoretically, someone could be doing a legitimate construction project, remodeling their house in ancient Israel, but paired with the digging the pit idea, it's probably a thief decides to break into someone's house and gets bit by a snake. Which we would say is poetic justice, crime doesn't pay, that sort of idea. But the main point that I think Solomon is making is accidents happen. Life is unpredictable because of this. Now, I suppose we could ask ourselves this question. Is there ever anything such as an accident in the world that is ruled by a sovereign God? No. They're surprises to us because we don't foresee them coming. They can be considered tragedies and accidents from a human perspective, and perhaps even rightly so, because there are things that happen that are terrible. There was a... I forget the context of it, but there was a family who had a teenage son who was on his way to school and backed out and ran over his younger brother who was playing by the car and didn't see him. That would be a horrific thing to live with for your entire life. But humanly speaking, there was no malicious intent in it. And yet trying to, trying to work through all those things would be very difficult. But the, the, the interesting thing that Solomon says in verse 9 is, not only can you get hurt when you're doing things you're not supposed to, 
but you can also have some sort of accident or injury take place even when you're doing what you ought to. Look at verse 9. What's happening in verse 9? Someone want to tell us? Okay. What specific tasks, I should say? Okay. So, I know we have the uh, imagery from cartoons of the guy in the chain beating the rock with a hammer. I don't think that it's supposed to be a negative picture here. It's rather just this idea... He's working, he's digging out stones to build a house, to do whatever. You can get injured while you're doing legitimate work. You can cut a tree, prepare it so that it should fall this way, and the wind catches it and blows this way and falls and breaks your leg or hurts you in some way. Accidents can happen even when you're doing what you're supposed to do. Where does wisdom come in? Verse 10, if the axe is dull and he does not sharpen its edge, then he must exert more strength. Wisdom has the advantage of giving success. All right? So just because accidents happen, we should not abandon wisdom. We'll still be more successful more often if we behave wisely and follow the course of wisdom than if we abandon ourselves to foolishness. So again, just the fact that accidents and unexpected things happen should not cause us to reject wisdom. Verse 11 gives us another example of this sort of accident. If the serpent bites before being charmed, there is no profit for the charmer. So probably seen those sorts of images from the Middle East, the guy's trying to play music or do some sort of motion with his hands to get the snake to come up out of its basket. But if it's a poisonous snake, you don't want to get bitten by it. But if he doesn't do it quite right, or if the snake suddenly decides, I'm not going to follow the instruction, he bites him, there is no profit for the charmer is kind of an understatement, right? That's a, a severe problem. Again, accidents happen. When you're doing things that are wrong, when you're doing things that are right, when you're working with things that have potential danger, you can follow all the right steps and the lion tamer gets bitten, the snake charmer gets bitten, um, the person who's welding singes their leg, the person that's working with the table saw cuts off part of their finger. You can be doing everything by the book and things happen. But don't give up on wisdom because of it. The last part of this chapter, and also tying into the verses that we skipped, are an interesting uh, coming together of two ideas. One is, watch what you say. And the other is, even when people over you are not ruling well. So let's go back to the verses that we skipped earlier in chapter 10. If the rulers, verse 4, if the ruler's temper rises against you, do not abandon your position because composure allays great offenses. What do you think is in view here? Okay, honesty. What else? Okay, staying calm for sure. 
the picture seems to be someone has a job or task or a position, right? Maybe they're a guard, maybe they're, it's hard to say precisely what the uh, task might be, but some sort of accusation comes against them from a superior. What's your gut response when somebody accuses you? I've got to go straighten it out right now. Essentially, this verse, I think, is saying, don't abandon your position, probably don't abandon your post, is the idea that it's, that it's getting at, because composure allays great offenses. So if you're accused of not doing your job well, and you stop doing your job so you can run over and defend yourself, does that help or hurt your case? It doesn't, doesn't help it, for sure. So Solomon is saying it is wise when there is an accusation, specifically a false one, to keep doing faithfully what you're supposed to be doing. But he says in this context, there's an irony, verses 5 through 7, there's an evil I've seen under the sun like an error which goes forth from the ruler. Folly is set in many exalted places while rich men set in, sit in humble places. I have seen slaves riding on horses and princes walking like slaves on the land. So what we would expect to happen with regard to those who are in positions of authority is sometimes reverse. Those who are foolish sometimes are the ones in charge. Those who are rich that you would think would have an exalted position sometimes are not. Those who have a right to rule are wandering the land and those who do not have a right to rule are those who are in charge. Again, I don't think that his main point is to make any comment on the rightness or wrongness of slavery or to put forth some sort of idea that if you have lots of money that you should be in charge. He's simply saying, here's the thing that we'd expect and here's the thing that we observe and they don't match up. So how can that complicate our lives as normal people? Let's turn over a little bit further in chapter 10. He talks a little bit more about the idea of words in verse 12. Words from the mouth of a wise man are gracious while the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of his talking is folly and the end of it is wicked madness. Yet the fool multiplies words. No man knows what will happen and who can tell him what will come after him. So these three verses about the contrast between the way that the wise speaks and the way that the fool speaks highlight for us some important ideas. What characterizes the speech of the wise? What's the tone of his words? What do they sound like? Verse 12. Yeah, gracious. Yeah. Why does the fool get himself in trouble by what he says? Verse 13. How does his words how do his words start and how do they end? Yeah. Okay. I think Solomon may be going back a little bit to what he said in Ecclesiastes chapter five, where he said do not be hasty in word or impulsive in thought to bring up a matter in the presence of God, for God is in heaven and you are on the earth, therefore let your words be few. If we set that aside, verse 14, the fool multiplies words, 
and particularly with that next phrase, no man knows what will happen and who can tell him what will come after him, it seems to set for us this sort of picture. The fool starts boasting in what he's going to do. And he starts out with foolishness, and he ends up potentially at the end of his speech cursing God or rejecting God's authority over his life. And why does Solomon condemn this? Because if God is who God is, and if God evaluates all that we see, we ought to be careful what we say. And particularly if our knowledge is limited and we don't know what's going to happen, which is a point he's made several times in the last few chapters, we ought to be careful to, uh, to not be asserting, I know all of these sorts of things. I know the course of my life. Here's what I'm going to do because it expresses a pride that God does not look favorably on. Watch what you say. Say less. It's a challenge for us, I think, usually. It doesn't mean we should never speak, but it does mean we should think about what we say. Verse 15 is going to connect foolishness with rulers. The toil of a fool so wearies him that he does not even know how to go to a city. Woe to you, O land, whose king is a lad and whose princes feast in the morning. So he sets two ideas next to each other. There's a fool who's so worn out from his work, his toil, he doesn't even get up to go into the city to do things that are worthwhile. What's an example of that? A land whose king is a lad and whose princes feast in the morning. Why is it a problem to feast in the morning? Okay, good. What else? Haven't done any work. Okay, good. Did you have another thought? Okay. All right. Yeah. You haven't done work yet. So if you start the day off by celebrating the things that you haven't done yet, it's not likely that you're going to get around to doing all the things that you're supposed to do. This is perhaps connected to, and perhaps Solomon had this in view, uh, his father David's great sin. He wasn't doing what he's supposed to doing. It was the time to do work, and he was hanging out at home. And he sinned. Now, the circumstance is not the reason that he sinned, but it certainly contributed to it, right? Blessed are you, O land, verse 17, whose king is of nobility and whose princes eat at the appropriate time for strength and not for drunkenness. So not only is the fool condemned because he eats at the wrong time, celebrating work that he hasn't yet earned the right to enjoy uh, because he hasn't done it, but there's also this idea that he does it to excess. This is why um, I try not to go to buffets too often. It's hard to control yourself in that context, right? And you don't necessarily just have to go to a buffet to have difficulty controlling yourself. Um, we all have weaknesses for different things when it comes to food. And we know that if we had that sitting in front of us, we'd just say, you know what, I'm going to eat all of that right now because it's so good. What's the problem with that? 
Drunkenness shows a lack of self-control. Feasting without end shows a lack of self-control. That's not the sort of thing that's supposed to characterize a ruler who has a lot more to think about than just himself. And so Solomon says, if you have somebody who feasts in the morning and does so to excess versus someone who is wise and does what he needs to do and fulfills his duties well, you're cursed, you're blessed. He goes back to this idea of laziness in verse 18. Through indolence the rafters sag and through slackness the house leaks. What does laziness have to do with your house falling apart? Okay, good. Sure. So there's routine maintenance and there's maintenance in the context of unexpected things that damage your house. You've got to do that or it's going to fall apart. Um, it seems uh, tedious, but um, just through first-hand experience and watching other things as well, um, it's important to check the see if the ceiling around the windows is good. It's important to check and see if you've got any big gaps in the brick or the siding or those sorts of things. Because if you don't, you're going to have, uh, it's just going to get worse. Uh, if, you find, if you leave a lot of little holes in the siding or in the brick, all sorts of nice bugs like to move in. Um, you just got to do these sort of basic maintenance. The lazy person doesn't care about that. Why? Because he would rather be feasting to excess and not doing the necessary tasks of life. Solomon says that's foolishness. Verse 19 uh, seems disconnected, but it, it, it is connected. Men prepare a meal for enjoyment, and wine makes life merry, and money is the answer to everything. It's a good Bible verse to put on your uh, fridge, right? Is it wrong to enjoy a meal? No. In the context of the Old Testament, I think he's saying it's not wrong to enjoy wine, it's not wrong to enjoy money. The problem is when it changes your perspective and you live for those things. I think Solomon is speaking somewhat sarcastically or at least speaking according to the perspective of the person who is living in a foolish way. They're living for food, for drink, for money. And Solomon has advised to a certain extent to make use of those things and to enjoy them, but it comes down to your perspective on them. Do you do it according to a course of wisdom or you, do you do it foolishly taking no thought for God's existence, the realities of life, a wise course of action. Verse 20, Furthermore, in your bedchamber do not curse a king, and in your sleeping rooms do not curse a rich man, 
For a bird of the heavens will carry the sound, and the winged creature will make the matter known. So this verse ties together, I think, some of the ideas that he said both in 4 through 7 and then here in 12 through 20. There may be people who are in charge who are foolish. You may be living wisely. You may observe the person who's foolish. And your response may be, let's talk badly about them. Um, this reminds me of the joke about why should you not tell secrets in the vegetable garden? Corn has ears, the potato has eyes, and something talks. I forget what that vegetable is. but um, Same sort of idea. The walls have ears. You know, th these sorts of expressions that we say. Just when we think we can run somebody down and they'll make us feel better, and no one will ever hear about it, the person that we said something to goes and opens their big mouth and gets us in trouble. Or the person that we're talking bad about happens to walk right by. This is the sort of scenario that Solomon is saying. So, just because foolishness can spoil the effects of wisdom, don't give up on wisdom. Just because accidents happen, don't give up on wisdom. And just because someone foolish may be above you, don't be foolish yourself. Watch what you say. Live with self-control. Rejoice if the right person is in control, but be wise about what you say if they're not. The main theme, I think, of this section is wisdom is better than folly. Even in a world where flies spoil the ointment, even in a world where the uh, rock can fall on your foot and crush it, even in a world where someone who is foolish and has no business being in power has authority over you in some way. Don't give up on wisdom, but recognize the limitations and the perplexity of a life in this sort of world. And what ultimately should that drive us to? The fact that things can be spoiled, the fact that accidents happen, the fact that sometimes the foolish rule. What should that make us think about or want? Heaven. We should want a world in which there is no serpent to bite and harm where the lion lies down with the lamb, where the righteous ruler rules the nations with a rod of iron and tolerates no injustice. We recognize the world that we live in, but we ought to look to the world that is to come. And I think that's part of what Solomon in God's wisdom is preparing us for, to recognize both the world in which we live and as we look at the whole of Scripture, to recognize the hope for the world in which we will be in someday. Let's pray. Lord, it's frustrating when things are spoiled. 
we have a, a plan set up, we have a really good idea, and then somebody comes along and messes it up. It can be tragic when something seemingly accidental comes and, and, and ruins a particular circumstance for us. It can be maddening to be under the authority of someone who is behaving in a foolish way and yet we are not in control, but they are. But these frustrations, Lord, are supposed to, I believe, drive us closer to you to recognize the flaws of this world, to look to the world that is to come, to recognize the limitations of our strength, to depend on your strength, to see the weakness of human rulers, and to long for the rule of Christ. Lord, help us as we live in this world and see these sorts of things. It's so easy for us to be short-sighted, to be angry and frustrated about these sorts of circumstances. Help it instead to drive us to pray, to look to your return, to live wisely and not give up on following you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.